Welcome to the podcast of Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more information about our church and for more messages, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I genuinely love winter as someone who has really bad allergies during the spring and summer months in particular. I'm glad that winter comes and kills it all. I I love the the unique beauty of winter, the the fresh snow that's resting on the trees. I even love, listen, I even love how our world is plunged into darkness by 5 p.m. I love that. And it's not because I love the darkness per se but because that darkness reminds me of how precious and beautiful light truly is. Light is never more beautiful than when it shines in the darkness. Uh, I I read an analogy recently where when you you hold up a diamond uh, just to the air in normal lighting, it it looks nice, but but when you set it against a black pillow, a, a velvety black background, that's when it really shines and really illuminates the room. The light is never more beautiful than when it shines in the darkness, and the gospel is never more beautiful than when it shines into the darkness of our world. Uh, We live in a dark world, a world that is dark because of sin, and because of depression, and because of abuse, and because of violence. It's, It's dark because of broken relationships and selfish living, It is dark because we wake up and we don't have hope. It's dark because not every story has a happy ending. Reality is not a fairy tale where you can almost anticipate that everything's going to resolve at the end of the day. Well, not every story ends like that. Some stories in reality are dark from beginning to end, and we we can't help but ask ourselves the question of of when, when is... When is it going to change? When is light going to come and transform the dark reality that we experience day by day? Well, Christmas tells us that the light has indeed come. I mean, that's why we we put up our Christmas lights. It's not just to get into the Christmas spirit. We, We put up Christmas lights because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And it's a little sad, actually, yesterday night before dinner, I took my kids out for a drive to go look out at Christmas lights and just vast swaths of our neighborhood still covered in darkness. It really is kind of a, a physical, visible sign of the increasing spiritual departure in our culture. But the original meaning behind Christmas lights is to, to point to the fact that Christ, the light of the world, has come and he shines in the darkness The light of the world has come, and it is not in the form of a government or a vaccine or a state of enlightenment, but the light has come in the form of a baby born in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem. That is our theme today, the light of the world, as we look at verses 6 to 13 in John chapter 1. Let's read those verses together. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We will divide our text today into three points. First, the witness to the light. Second, the coming of the light. And third, the power of the light. Let's begin with the witness to the light. Last Sunday, Pastor Tim took us on what you could call a a soaring Christological tour of verses 1 to 5. The Apostle John declares to us that in the beginning, before anything existed, there was only one consciousness, God himself. And Christ was there. Christ was with God and Christ was God. He was there in the beginning with God. He was there in the eternal fellowship, unbroken, completely pure and loving between the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And Christ was at work creating all things, all things in the heavens and in the earth, from the the super giant stars to the microscopic bacteria on our hands. Christ created it all. He is the fountain of life. He is the very source and sustainer of reality. And all life comes from him. Now what John does in verse 6 is he, he turns our attention from the heavens to history. From, from the cosmos to first century Middle East. And just like the other gospel writers, as they root the life of Jesus in history, he begins with John the Baptist. Now, it may sound a little strange to our modern ears that there is such an emphasis on John the Baptist in all four of the gospel stories of the life of Jesus. Because, I mean, we stand on this side of the cross where we know that Jesus is the, the, the real main attraction. It's, it's all about Christ. And John the Baptist came merely as a herald. He, he's, he's just the one who laid out the red carpet. And so why should we put such an emphasis on John the Baptist? When we ask that question, we need to remember how the original readers would have interpreted this emphasis on John the Baptist. Like, John may not have been a big deal to us, but he was supremely a big deal to them. John had a powerful ministry. I mean, people were leaving the comfort of their homes to journey through the wilderness where John the Baptist was preaching and eating locusts covered with honey in order to hear him and in order to be baptized in the freezing cold water of the Jordan River. John the Baptist was single-handedly bringing about a revival of immense magnitude. Even Jesus himself, in John chapter 5, calls John a burning and shining lamp. He had light. 
that he was shining in the darkness. Verse 6 affirms this when it says that there was a man sent from God. God sent John into the world with a divine mission and a divine message to call people to repent of their sins and to return to the Lord. But what we see in verses 7 and 8 is the Apostle John clarifying the scope of John the Baptist's mission when he says he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So what the Apostle John is doing here is he's using courtroom language to describe John the Baptist. He calls John a witness three times in these verses. He's like a witness in a court case who's been summoned to testify about what he knows. You could even call him the star witness. Every trial that's of any significance has a star witness where everybody's waiting for this witness to speak. Well, John is that witness. But as you may know, trials are never about the witnesses. The only reason why there are witnesses and star witnesses is because they testify about something that is far more important than themselves. And that was the case for John. John may have been God's star witness, but his testimony was only important because it pointed to the greater question of who the Christ is. Who is the Messiah? And how are we to prepare for him? John was a burning and shining lamp. But that is nothing compared to the blazing glory of the sun. I mean, what is a candle compared to the, the, the trillions of, of atomic reactions happening within a, within a star? That is the difference between John, the burning and shining lamp, and Christ, the light of the world. Now, as Christians, we, we have the opportunity to follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist. John was a witness. He's called a witness, and so are we. As Christians, we are called witnesses. That's one of the last things that Jesus, the risen Christ, said before he ascended back to heaven. He said, you are my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So one of the reasons why John the Baptist is so important to the Christmas story is that he shows us where we fit in the Christmas story. He shows us our place in this grand narrative where the Son of God came into the world. John was not the light, and we are not the light either. We have only come to bear witness about the light. And this is important because if you're anything like me, when you come across someone who's in need, someone who is suffering, someone who needs counsel, we think, oh, what they really need is more of me. They need, they need my compassion. They need my counsel. They need my wisdom, my insight. But what they really need is Jesus. Because we can't be anyone's savior. We are not the light that shines in the darkness. We can't forgive people's sins or give them the strength to forgive other people's sins against them. But we know someone who can. Someone who is greater than us. Someone whose sandals we are not worthy to untie. John Piper put it this way. The word and the life and the light are coming into the world. But they are not going to conquer this darkness the way a bolt of lightning brightens the night. 
They're going to conquer it by lighting millions of cold, dead human torches with the oxygen of the gospel and the mysteriously spontaneous combustion of the new birth. And that gospel will come through human witnesses. Christian, I don't know if you've ever considered yourself this, but you are nothing but a cold, dead human torch brought to life by the oxygen of the gospel with the spontaneous combustion of new birth. That that is what we are. And that should humble us and that should dignify us. It, It should humble us because we are not the light, but it dignifies us because we get to point people to the light. John wasn't the light, but verse seven says, he came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. People are believing in the light, in the life, in the word become flesh through him, through his testimony, through his witness. People came to believe through John the Baptist. And today people come to believe through us as well. We may not save people, but people are only going to be saved if we point them to the one who can save them. John was sent from God, and so is every Christian. We are sent from God to testify about what we know of the Christ. We're called to testify in the courtroom of people's conscience that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And then we are to fade into obscurity. We are to be like John when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. That is our glorious end, my friends, to preach Christ, to die, and to be forgotten. And by the grace of God, he memorializes us, just like he memorialized John. John is not forgotten because of the sacred task that God had given him, and and we will also not be forgotten in God's heavenly courts because of the sacred task that he has given us. Verse 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And this leads to our second point, the coming of the light. Now we know, again, from last Sunday in verses 1 to 5, that John, the Apostle John, is intentionally drawing parallels between Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1. And he does that in, in, in three ways, as he shows us where Christ fits into the creation story. The first way is Genesis 1 verse 1 tells us that in the beginning, God... Those are the opening four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Now John 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word, of course, being a title for Jesus. Jesus was there with God in the beginning before anything existed. He was with God and he was God. The second parallel that John draws is Genesis 1 verse 3 tells us that God said, As he creates, he speaks. He he creates through his powerful word. And John 1 tells us that in some mysterious way, Jesus was the word. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, so in some way, God, through the agency of his Son, was creating all things. All things create through Christ, as God sends him to accomplish his divine purposes. Third parallel. Genesis 1 verse 3 says that the first thing God said was let there be light. Right? As the, as the world is without form and void and darkness covers the face of the earth, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke into the darkness and illuminated it with the beauty of light. And here in John chapter 1, we are told that Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. The true light that was coming into the world. And the darkness has not overcome it. John is telling us that, that Jesus was present in God's act of creation. And now Jesus is present in God's act of recreation. He is present as, as the word, as the life, and as the light. He has life in himself, and he has light in himself. I mean, everything that shines in our created world, everything that is luminescent, derives its light from something else, from something that came before it. Even the sun, even stars that are, that are radiating light for thousands of years, millions even of years, they depend on these nuclear reactions that are going on between atoms that release energy and light. But Jesus does not depend on anything outside of himself to produce that light John Calvin wrote this, whatever is luminous in heaven and in earth borrows its splendor from some other object, but Christ is the light, shining from itself and by itself and enlightening the whole world by its radiance so that no other source or cause of splendor is anywhere to be found. Now, of course, we're not talking about just a mere physical light. I mean, Jesus isn't the ultimate light bulb. Uh, light is used in the Bible as imagery for truth and beauty and the glory of God. And, and that light radiates from the person of Christ, from himself and by himself. The splendor and beauty of the light of Christ is completely unlike anything we have seen or experienced in this world. And yet, unlike the light of the sun, the light of Christ can be rejected, it can be ignored. It can be overlooked. Verse 10 puts it this way. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Imagine investing your life savings into building a village for a poor people in a poor country. And every day you're sending the people in this village fresh supplies you're providing health care for them. You're building and maintaining their roads. You're keeping them safe. You give them righteous laws for them to live by. And one day you decide to visit that town yourself and see how things are going and hope that people would respond with some gratitude. But when you arrive, nobody knows you and nobody cares who you are. Nobody's grateful for what you have done Nobody acknowledges your, your daily presence in sustaining that town. I mean, you, you sent a messenger ahead of yourself to announce that you were coming. And when you did arrive, he's, he's heralding your presence saying, behold, 
This is your king. This is the one who's providing for you. But no one cares. Everyone's busy with their own lives and their own priorities. John is saying that this is how the world responded to Jesus. He, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Creation did not recognize its creator. Sinners did not recognize their savior. And verse 11 puts it another way. He says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 11 could literally be translated as he came to his own things. His own things, a word that can be used for one's property or one's home. He came to his own home. He came to a place that he had built for himself. That he had prepared for a people that he had purchased for himself. He came home. And his own people did not receive him. Instead, they rejected him. They mocked him, they beat him, and they crucified him. Now John is likely referring to the Jewish people here, the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, but all of us would have done the same thing. I mean, we who were created through him and for him chose to hang him on a tree to die. My friends, what we see in these two verses is the utter depths of human depravity. Not only are we not grateful to our creator and sustainer, we we would rather execute him than submit to him. Jesus explains why. He, He is not surprised by this. Actually, their rejection of him is part of what confirms his true identity because the prophecies in the Old Testament told us that he would be rejected. This is confirmation of his divine identity and mission. And so Jesus explains why this happened in John chapter 3. In his conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, he says, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that the world was not just indifferent to his presence. The world was hostile. It hated the light. We, we want to kill the light and keep it from shining. And my friends, regardless of where you come from spiritually, whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, this is us. This is us apart from the grace of God. We hate the light. If you've read The Lord of the Rings, we're like Gollum, dwelling in caves, traveling by night, living in the darkness, hating the sun because it burns us. The very thing that brings life to the world feels like death, and we reject it. Well, that's who we would be if God decided to just shine his light and let us respond to it how we will. To let our natural instincts inform how we respond to the light. We would respond to the light with rejection and hatred. But by the grace and mercy of God, this light does not just illuminate. This light transforms us. And this leads to our final point, the power of the light. 
Verse 12 is one of the most powerful expressions of the gospel in the Bible. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. My friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news of what Christ has come to accomplish. To all, to all, whether Jew or Gentile, whether rich or poor, whether sinner or saint, all, all who received him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And when we read that verse, we should be saying, how can that be? How can that verse be true? I mean, rights define how others have to treat us. How can we have rights before God? We do not tell God how to treat us. God tells us how to treat him. And yet, because of Christ, because of Christ and through faith in his name, he has given us the right to become the children of God. Christian, this is your inheritance in Christ. This is your divine privilege. This is your legal right before God that Christ has purchased on your behalf. You who loved the darkness and hated the light have become a child of God. There's nothing that is more wonderful than this. And the Apostle John, he tries to capture this. Outside of his gospel, he wrote three epistles, three letters that made it into the canon of scripture as well. In his first epistle, he writes, see, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. My friend, do you see? Do you see the love of the Father given to you when he calls you a child of God? There is glory here that we so often miss. Glory that is beyond our comprehension. Glory that is beyond our daily experience. It is the glory of God's love poured out on sinners in order to make us his children. It's often hard to see this glory because we, we either take it for granted, we forget our identity, or we just presume that, yeah, of course, God would make me his child. He's lucky to have me as his child. <laughs> or we mistakenly think that everyone is a child of God. You know, in my theology class that I teach at Christian school in, in Newmarket, I often ask the class, well, how would you answer this question? Are we all children of God? And most of the time, most of the class says, yes, we're all children of God. And that comes from the idea that we are all made in the image of God, true, but that doesn't mean that we're all children of God. That's false. We, we, we cannot confuse the two. To be made in the image of God does not naturally mean that you belong to the family of God. It may have meant that in the beginning, Adam is called the son of God. But sin changed all of that. If the New Testament teaches us anything about whose children we are, it teaches us that we are the children of wrath. The children of wrath, we are by nature children of wrath, alienated from God and dead to him spiritually in our trespasses and sins. But God has taken all, 
all who receive Jesus and believe in his name and given them the right to become his children. And this, this is meant to inform the entirety of the Christian life. Okay, this, is, this isn't, as we talk about the gospel being like a diamond, you turn one facet to another, justification, sanctification, glorification, forgiveness of sins. You, you look at all the different facets of the gospel. Our adoption through Christ by God stands at the center of the diamond. J.R. Packer puts it this way in his classic book, Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. God has many names in the Old Testament. He is called creator, Lord, provider, almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the everlasting God. He is Yahweh. But in the New Testament, he is called Father. He is called Father. And that is why Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. Our Father. Jesus teaches us to trust that God will provide for us, not just as the one who created all things and the one who owns all things, but he will provide for us as our Father. He, he teaches us to trust that God will hear our prayers, not just as a benevolent divine being in heaven, but he hears our prayers as our Father. He teaches us to to, to, to trust that God will be faithful to us, not just because he is holy in his faithfulness, that he always keeps his promises, but he will be faithful to us as our father. He teaches us to, to believe that, that God will guide us and counsel us, not just as the one who is all wise and who knows every day of our lives and knows what is best for us, but he will counsel and guide us as our father. He will discipline us as our father. He will love us as our father. He will cherish us as our father. My friends, this is the privilege that we have as Christians who are united to the son of God. We've been made the children of God. It is our right to call on God as our father. And it is a right, let me emphasize this, it is a right that belongs to us not by works, but by grace. It is as Verse 12 says, it is for those who believed in his name, who received him, who are given the right to become the children of God. This is a family. God's family is a family that we could never be good enough to join. We had to be welcomed in by grace. And that is what he has done in Jesus Christ. And when we are welcomed into the family of God, a miracle takes place in our souls. We looked at this a couple weeks ago on New Member Sunday, Baptism Sunday. There's a miracle of regeneration, of being born again. Verse 13 describes this when it says that God's children are those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God.
My friends, today, if you are a Christian, John is telling us that your new birth, your regeneration, your adoption into the family of God was not something that you did yourself. It is not something your parents did. It's not something your pastors did. It's not something that friend who led you to Christ did. It is what God did. It is what God did. You were born again, not of blood, but of the Spirit. And you were born again, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. You were born again because God willed it. This is the mystery of God's sovereign grace. That he chooses those who belong to himself. Yes, you received Jesus. Yes, you believed in his name. Yes, God may have sent you a a John the Baptist type figure in your own life to, to point you to the light. But behind it all, behind the wills and the plans of man, stands the sovereign grace of God, sovereignly acting on your behalf for his name's sake to bring you from death to life. My friends, this is what Christmas is all about. Jesus was born so that we could be born again by the will of God. God sent his only son into the world to bring many sons and daughters to glory. The light of the world has come to to free us from loving the darkness so that we would instead love God as our father. We were reminded a couple weeks ago on that same Sunday, Baptism Sunday, to, to never lose the awe of our own conversion. Well, today we are reminded afresh to never lose the awe of our own adoption. If you are a child of God, that is a privilege that has been given to you by grace. Not because you made yourself one. It's because God made you one. Orphans do not make themselves part of a family. The parents have to choose the orphan. Intentionally pursue and woo and legally adopt into the family. And it is no different for us. God chose you, not just to be, for, be, not just to be forgiven of your sin, not just to be saved from God's judgment. God chose you to be his precious, beloved child and to belong to his family forever. So this Christmas, I encourage you to spend time cultivating a sense of awe at your own adoption. One of the ways we can do that is by how we pray. Many Christians do not feel very comfortable addressing God as anything but Lord, God, Almighty. And that that is good. It puts us in a posture of reverence and fear, recognizing that he is the creator, we are the creation. He is God and we are not. But Christ has purchased something better for us. That we can address God through prayer as our Father. That is the will of God for you. He willed you to be his child and now he wills you to relate to him as your father. I mean, can you imagine a child in your own family loved by you, cherished by you, 
who shows you a lot of respect, but never affection. Don't be like that child. Come to God as one of his beloved children. And remember that this right to become a child of God did not come from your works, didn't come from who you are, what you have done. It was a right that was given to you by another son, by another child, by the perfect son of God. Christ willingly laid down his rights to give you your rights to become the child of God. So thank Jesus, worship him, and obey his commands. Now, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, I need to warn you that what I have said, what the Bible says about those who are united to Christ by faith, who have received and believed in his name, who have given the right to become children of God, who can address God as Heavenly Father, who have the assurance that God is your faithful Father who will never leave you or forsake you, that is not true of you. Not yet. You are not yet one of God's children. But you can be. You can be. Don't be like the world that ignored its creator. Don't be like the world that rejected its savior. Instead, receive him as Lord. Believe in his name. Believe that he died for your sins as your savior. And listen, a miracle will happen in your soul. A miracle. Not something that you can perceive, perhaps not even something you can feel, but you will be changed from the inside out. And the fruit of that will be borne out throughout the rest of your life. So come to Christ, believe in his name, be born again, and become a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we see afresh what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we could become and called the children of God, and so we are. Thank you for this divine privilege to be welcomed, not just into your presence, but into your home, to be part of your family. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would live in the good and the joy of this, of knowing that, that the almighty creator of the world is our Father by grace. That that would not diminish your glory, but it would increase our intimacy with you. And for any here who are listening with indifference, I pray that you would give them fresh eyes to see that they would be born again, not of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but born of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.